0: It is December 2014. And resident historian Doug Cank Crispin has been reading. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome. another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked out history folks at ORhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindbergh, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kank Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff kick-ass oregon history is a presentation of orhistory.com and is supported by listeners like you if you'd like to support the podcast visit orhistory.com and click donate
1: This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and this is another episode of the Kick-Ass Book Club. And it's my favorite book club that I've ever been in because I get to choose all the books we read. No more selections about some 40-something divorcee wandering the world to find their happy place. It's just solid books about Oregon history. We interview the authors who wrote these books and present them with probing questions about why their book should be in the Oregon Library. And we'd like to encourage you to ask them questions too. Just go to our Facebook, our Twitter, or email us your questions for your favorite authors, and we might just ask yours. This is resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, and I am sitting down with J.D. Chandler and J.B. Fisher. And we are talking about their book that's just out, uh, Portland on the Take. And thanks so much for sitting down with us, guys. And uh, boy, I read that book, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm so excited that uh, we get to sit here and chat about it. So give us the elevator speech. What is Portland on the Take about?
2: Okay, Portland on the take. I'm J.D. Um, Starts with the 1934 waterfront strike where the um, Longshore Union wins the strike against all odds. And the reaction from the city and the state is a major red scare, a crackdown on communists in all unions. What it did is it made some of the unions in Portland really vulnerable to take over by gangsters. So our book looks at what happened in the strike, how the gangsters took over some of the unions, and then how people like Jim Elkins and Al Winner really took control of the gangster situation and the crime situation in Portland in the 30s and 40s. We get into uh, some of the unsolved murders of the late 40s. Um, Really, they're quite interesting.
1: Now, of course, in the era, uh, we've got Phil Stanford's excellent Portland Confidential and Robert Donnelly's Dark Rose, which is, again, a very excellent book. Sure. Um, and you guys, you know, those books covered some kind of similar ground like you guys yeah. did as well. What sets Portland on the take apart And what I really kind of consider this trilogy? You know, what, do, what are you guys bringing? Two, two things really set us apart. First, our book is a prequel. Ours looks at the
2: early careers of these guys that we find out about in Dark Rose and Portland Confidential. And second are the sources that we have, which I'm going to let JB, JB talk a little about.
3: Yeah, it really comes down to the sources in the sense that we have material that no one else has. Uh, and it started with the files and the notebooks of Walter Graven, who was Multnomah County detective in uh, the 40s and 50s. And the murders that Graven was trying to solve were not unrelated to the stories that Donnelly and Stanford have told. Uh, And our story, as J.D. was just saying, really helps to understand how things got going as far as the vice rackets, the uh, rise of organized crime, uh, and we really put some of those pieces together in part by looking at the earlier periods and also by following through these unsolved uh, murders. So these notebooks, Graven then, his, his, you know, essentially officer's
1: notebooks Mm -hmm. had not been looked at before is what you're saying?
3: Yeah, they've been kept. His family has held on to them. Uh, He has actually suitcases, well a suitcase with a lot of his officer's notebooks and lots of clippings and personal notes uh, on a number of different kinds of cases and it really looks like he was leaving the stuff for someone else to find and to follow further because as our book talks about he was definitely onto some trails that he was not able to to uh, get to the end of. You lucky little bastards. Yeah, in, in
2: addition to Walter Graven, we uh, met the great-grandson of Earl Anderson, the Clark mm-hmm. County Sheriff, who was involved in the Dewey murder. Mm-hmm. And we got his, his investigative notebooks from, those, from that case. I had the investigative file on the Frank Tatum murder from the Portland Police Museum. So I have all of the homicide investigative reports. And then we found Rolla Crick's notebook. He was a reporter for the Oregon Journal at the time. And we found his reporter's notebook. So we had his raw notes as well.
1: Now, let's talk about the Kickstarter. Uh, You know, this this project was partially funded by that. Uh, You guys were wildly successful. You put out a Kickstarter there. You had uh, 30 backers. You raised over $2,200, actually, over your goal. And then Fox News 12 picked up your story, and they did a great little piece on it, which, uh, let's get real, film of historians (laughs) digging around in the archives isn't exactly riveting television. But, you know, they, they did a really good job, and you got a chance to tell a little bit about your story on that segment. Why were people so excited about this book? That's a really
2: good question. I think part of it is that we are actually solving some unsolved murders. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're even naming some important suspects. But most important, thank God for curious reporters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cammie Horton at uh, OPB and Caitlin Bolduck at Fox 12 have been really interested in what we're doing. And I hope that we're going to see some follow-up on this because they're interesting stories that people want to know about.
3: Yeah, I think in this internet age, there's an assumption that, you know, you just Google information and it's there for the taking. Uh, But the reality is when you find these sort of hordes of information that are obviously one of a kind, like, you know, from Anderson or Graven or Crick, you know, this is stuff that deserves to get out there and is really, really interesting at least maybe we're a little biased here but i think other people are interested in the the question of what what's there what is the information that people weren't able to share in the past.
1: Now, I want to go back to that Kickstarter thing real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Just just talk about that process. You know, we went through it, of course, <laughs> ourselves. We had a successful crowdfunder on Incited, but same kind of thing, for our uh, road trip podcast that uh, we did this summer. So, you know, I, I've kind of gone through it as well, uh, and I think a lot of folks don't really... I think that some people just put things out there and think that they are folks scrolling through and they're going to give money, but it's not like that. Do you want to talk about that fundraising, fundraising yeah. process a little bit? Well,
2: you know, it's a nerve-wracking process, <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> You never know what's going to happen. You never know how much support there's going to be. And and it really, it's not just people browsing through the internet find you and give you money. That would be great, but that doesn't really happen. It, it's, it takes a lot of work of reaching out to the people that you know and the people that know your work. And then if you can get some attention from Fox 12, that really helps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's a great way to make contact with readers. Um, you know, I... I a lot of the people that contributed to our Kickstarter campaign are people that have found me through my earlier books and who I've had
1: a little bit. I knew who they were, but
2: I didn't really know them.
1: Let's name your two other books, um,
2: uh, Murder and Mayhem in Portland and uh, Hidden History of Portland, both from the history press. Um, but it was, really, it was a way to really get to know some of these people. And it's nice because some of them turn out to be descendants of people that I've written about. Uh,
1: so you get that extra little bit of information as well. You know, and I'm looking at it. It's really kind of interesting in your case and our case as well. It's almost kind of a patron artist relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like uh, we're telling people, hey, we want to write this book or we want to do this project. And people are interested in that. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to say that Kick-Ass Oregon History, we, we helped out with this project as well. We thought this was a great book. This is the kind of book I want to read. So we actually gave money to help you guys yeah. finish this project. I mean, do you kind of see that going forward as kind of, hey, we want to look into this, but it's going to cost a little Skrilla, you know? Can yeah. can we work it out?
3: Yeah, you know, it's funny because in some ways technology is actually taking us back to the Renaissance, to Shakespeare's era, because it was all about patrons back then helping fund writers, you know, basically get their projects um, to print. And now here we are doing it again. And it's, you know, nowadays, not usually like dukes and countesses and shit giving us money, but, you know... You, Yeah, definitely. I think that contribution factor there really, I think what JD was talking about too, of getting a sense of the readership and really having that feel that, you know, they're looking forward to it. And it's kind of a a mutual sense of, you know, we're working for them. We're not just working for a a press, you know, giving the, the, the thing to go out to, you know, unknown readers. There's really a sense of a community that we're we're involved with. And I hope it does go forward because Mm
2: -hmm. people don't know how much money it costs to put together something like this. Mm -hmm. There's expenses everywhere you turn and if you don't have a source of funding,
1: it's hard to do this kind of work. Now, before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of the book, which of course we certainly want to do, uh, the book is co-authored. So, how do you guys? How did you guys go about the writing? I mean, and I'm I'm talking about the actual mechanics of it. Did you each do a chapter or something like that? How did How did you co-author co-author this book?
2: It it kind of came about naturally. Um, I had been planning a book on Jim Elkins' early career. cause had found this investigative file on the Tatum case. And so that's kind of what I was doing. I was like, so who is Jim Elkins? How can I tell his story? And then ended up with this Tatum case. And JB had been doing uh, a lot of research on some other cases. He came to me with a connection that I had known about, but hadn't really investigated. And it was a natural. It was this podless Schultz murder in 1948 leading into the Joanne Dewey case. And so we, it was real easy to split up. Uh, basically, I wrote. Other than the Beer Wars chapter, I wrote the first half of the book up until the chapter on Dorothy McCullough Lee and J.B. finished with the Podlas Schultz and the Dewey case uh, Mm -hmm. going on to Walter Graven, and and we added some things later on to that. Uh, But it was uh, pretty clear cut. I I wrote a, a real tight outline to get us started, and we stuck to it pretty much except for adding a few things along the way.
1: Well, let's get right into it then. Who was Jim Elkins, and was he the most productive junkie ever, (laughs) at least until the rock star era? I don't think that he
2: reaches the level of a Keith Richards or a Kurt Cobain, but for his time, he did pretty well. Uh, And he was addicted to opiates. Uh, That was his most important concern when he arrived in Portland in 1937, and it was the basis of his burglary ring. Um, He hired burglars to rob pharmacies, uh, Harry Heworth was, his, was the one who wrote about it later. Um, but he, the deal that he had with Heworth was, you rob the pharmacy, give me the narcotics, you can keep all the money. Uh, so he, that was his most important concern when he arrived in Portland in 1937 was getting his supply of narcotics. He also brought a lot of heroin into this town through San Francisco and, and Seattle. But he took control. His main thing was protection. He would protect people who had illegal businesses. He ran a lot of bootleg clubs and he had his slot machines and all of that stuff too. But his main business was protection.
3: Yeah, I think he, you know, had a a number of different kinds of associates who, again, in, in our project we kind of uncovered an interesting web, especially around Third and Burnside. Um, in our story, a couple of locations. So west
1: side, Dante's
3: side. Yeah, right? west side. In <laughs> fact, Dante is the building there and the Fucking building next Fucking voodoo donut, right? Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's right. The epicenter, that was a place called the Hotel Claire that was kind of a seedy hotel. And across the street was a place called Burke's Cafe. And those turned out to be directly relevant to our story. And then it turns out Elkins had a bootlegging joint right around the corner, at least two. one. He and two, two, yeah, he had two right <laughs> in the neighborhood. So he was obviously right there and, uh, you know, pretty much, in charge of that area so it helped to explain some of the dynamics of what we were looking at as well yeah
2: and Elkin's career he he moved into slot machines pretty much as soon as he came to Portland because there was a guy named Royden Enlow, who was a violent criminal who was running slot machines and uh, coin in the slot machines so they weren't all gambling machines but he ran these coin operated machines and he was very vulnerable uh, because of some personal problems that had come up for him So Jim Elkins took advantage of that to take over his business. Uh, He went to jail in 1939, came back to Portland in 1940 in even a much stronger position, partly because of his relationship with Al Winner, and also partly because of his cooperation with the uh, Naval Intelligence and the Coast Guard during World War II. He actually protected himself quite a bit by doing that.
3: And he served relatively (laughs) limited jail time throughout, right? Definitely people were... Yeah, he had several
2: convictions and very little jail time. He spent five years
1: in jail on a 30-year sentence at one point. The beer war. Taverns, pubs, as folks would say, are being bombed for selling the wrong brand of beer. Now, I hate to do historical comparisons because it's never exactly the same, but I'm picturing somebody going into a bar and saying, you know, sir, fucking Nkasi here. (laughs) And then a couple days later, boom, you know. So what
3: was the beer war
1: about?
3: Well, the beer war went down in the summer of 1935, and it basically started out as two rival unions fighting over who got to drive the beer delivery trucks. That's really how it started, and there was a new brewer in town named Peter Marinoff, and he'd recently bought Portland's old Gambrinus Brewery and started making his red label Marinoff beer there. Um, He was okay with his brewery union employees driving the delivery trucks, But as Teamsters, employers weren't having any of it. There had been a previous agreement that they'd be the ones driving the truck. So there was some violence that started out. There were knife fights in the streets, beer trucks being stopped by gangs of thugs. And then the bombing started. Actually, there were bricks thrown and bombs set off. It kind of got really messy over the summer. One of the places was Bill Foogie's Rock Creek Store, which is McMenamin's Rock Creek Tavern today. Uh, And they threw a bomb Uh, out front and the owners turned it into a fish pond and actually that ruin of that pond is still there. Uh, But basically there were a lot of other bombings and both the Teamsters and the brewery union put out rewards for capture of what they called outside parties responsible. But the Teamsters later, some of them were charged uh, and then it turned out that money was changing hands between some of the Teamsters and the police, particularly on the Red Squad and so it got pretty messy, and then it got pretty much forgotten once those kinds of revelations came out. Um, but you can still go to McMenamins Rock Creek Tavern and see the little display they have outside the bathrooms of some of the images of the beer wars. But um, the way we discovered some information and the way we present it, there there was quite a bit to it. As far I mean, it went on for a while throughout that summer, and then there were some interesting. Uh, repercussions regarding the trials for the, the people who were held responsible for the bombing.
2: And the Beer War is a great label because we're a beer town but it was only a, um, a one aspect of what was going on there was a lot of violence in union organizing at the time and it, most of it was coming from agents provocateur from the Red Squad mm-hmm. they infiltrated several unions and then used those unions as anti-union
1: tools. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell us what the Red Squad is?
2: I would love to tell you what the Red Squad was The Red Squad is now known as the Intelligence Division. This is the part of the police department that every mayor between George Baker and Vera Katz denied existed. They said that there is no such thing. It's been around since 1919. It was um, created as a weapon against the uh, IWW. Um, But it didn't really take off until 1921 when Walter O'Dale came back from World War I and took over. Um, Walter O'Dale was a dedicated anti-communist. And the mission of the Red Squad under O'Dell was uh, to keep track of radicals. That was the official mission. But O'Dell used it to disrupt radicals and to influence elections. Uh, Basically, what he did is he monitored uh, meetings of any organization that he considered to be a radical group, which included the the, um, American Legion. Uh, No, the American Legion was part of the Red Squad. Uh, It included the uh, American Civil Liberties Union and pretty much any union um, other than the Teamsters. Uh, They would keep track of those meetings, take pictures of everybody there, match up those names, and then they would publish lists of communists who had attended these meetings. So you might be working at the lumber mill, and your boss would call you into the office and say, well, the Portland police say that you're a communist, and we can't let you work anymore until you clear your name. Uh, That was one of the tactics they used. They infiltrated organizations of all kinds with uh, uh, informers and agents provocateurs. Uh, We have some evidence that um, um, it was Red Squad members who were involved in some murders uh, that were blamed on union members. Um, They did disruption. Uh, For example, during the 34 strike, they would uh, often disguise themselves as ILA members, the Longshore Union members, and then attack the uh, more radical waterfront unions uh, to try and create a split between the ILA and the communists. Um, They published blacklists. Um, during elections, Walter Reddale would make charges against candidates without any evidence at all. He would just say so-and-so is a red um, and influence the election that way. So uh, this is what the Red Squad did. They are still around. They're the intelligence division now. And their mission, as they say, is to keep track of radical activity, um, not to disrupt it anymore.
1: So this is really kind of heavy shit. I mean, you have businesses being bombed in southeast Portland and out west as well. Uh, In the mix of residential and commercial neighborhoods, uh, it sounds like a war zone in your book on Portland in the 1930s. You got a great quote from William Kilpock, actually. He says, war is safer than standing in a Portland street. And I mean, that's not bullshit, right? No, it's not bullshit. That's actually a 1946 quote,
2: though. Um, And he was... William Kilpock was a, a combat veteran from the Pacific. He, he fought in the war, and he was standing in line to go to a movie on Broadway in front of the Orpheum Theater in 1946 when a crazy guy ran up and hit him in the head with an axe. So he had a real personal reason for saying that. <laughs> but I love the quote because it really shows what this town was like. In the 30s and 40s, this was a tough town.
3: Uh, it was easy to get killed here. In the late 40s, there are a number of accounts of people being especially young women being abducted off the street which in fact is what happened to joanne dewey as well uh and basically it sounds like in a lot of the cases it was the same group they seemed to use a uh a modus operandi that was often you know pretending to be a spouse and the people tried to intervene saying no this is you know that's my wife and then taking them into the car and abducting them and yeah it was a very frighteningly dangerous place from yeah. You know, Tell us about the abortion
1: racket. This this was pretty interesting to me. I'm mean, going to let JB handle
3: that. Yeah, so this is um, part of, toward the end of our book, um, we found ourselves able to tell this story and recognize that it was actually related to the rest of it. In um, part, this goes back to Rolla Crick and the notebooks that we found, or the notebook, and some other information on him. Um, so in 1951, he was writing for the Oregon Journal. Uh, and he was kind of one of their star reporters. And he helped to organize and carry out what was at the time the largest raid on abortion clinics in Oregon history. Um, they got Ruth Barnett and lots of others, and they made it much harder to have an abortion safely in Portland, which had actually been up till then a pretty reasonable um, proposition. Um, so Crick uh, wrote a bunch of sensational stories about it in the, in the Oregon Journal, including talking about how he went undercover with a, a female police officer to a clinic. She pretended to be an abortion-seeking wife, and then they basically raided the place. With other police. Uh, But when we got a hold of his personal notebooks this summer, it got really interesting because it seemed that he was actually more interested in busting Elkins' prostitution ring and really getting to Elkins um, than getting to abortionists. Uh, And then we found it got even more interesting. We found out that it turned out that um, some of the police who were taking payoffs from the brothels who Crick was tracking were also the same ones trying to bribe abortion providers. So it looked like that was really his effort to try to get at the the heart of the matter here.
1: Uh. And of course, one of my favorite characters of uh, Portland's passage you guys get a bit into is uh, Mayor Dorothy McCullough-Lee. And as you point out, she had the largest percentage of votes ever earned in the Portland mayor's race. 70%. Who was no sin Lee? Dorothy McCullough-Lee is one of my favorite characters
2: from Portland history, too. She's a classic example of the conservative feminist. Conservative feminists are feminists who believe that women are morally superior to men. They believe that gender roles are natural and sacred. And they're often involved in moral reform movements like prohibition, uh, anti-vice movements, and things like that. So Dorothy McCullough Lee, um, she's not the first woman state legislator in the state, but she was the most long, longest running of those. She was a state senator. Uh, she was elected from Southeast Portland. In 1943, one of the uh, city council members died. And Earl Riley, the mayor, appointed Dorothy McCauley to fill that seat. Uh, In 1944, she got elected. Uh, She became our first woman mayor in 1946 because Earl Riley was out of town and she was sworn in for the day. Uh, But then she got elected in 1948. Um, And the way she got elected was it it came from the Frank Tatum murder. Uh, Frank Tatum was a ship captain who spent a lot of time in Portland. He was on a regular run between Portland and Japan. And he was murdered in, a, in one of the after-hours clubs owned by Jim Elkins. Um, his murder got a lot of publicity for the vice scene, what was going on in Portland. It really exposed this whole underworld of people who were involved in drugs, uh, illegal sex, gambling, just everything. Uh, anything that you wanted was available in these clubs. Um, and Portland periodically has these anti-vice reform movements that come up. You see it over and over again in history. They usually don't last very long, and that's what got Dorothy Lee. She got elected with 70% of the vote. She was elected during the um, primary election in May, so she didn't have to stand election again in November. That was probably her her downfall uh, because she had almost a whole year before she took office. By the time she took office, nobody was interested in closing down Vice anymore. The city has always got a major amount of its income from Vice, um, so the reform movements never can last because it costs too much. So by the time she took office, her support was gone. And she was literally laughed out of office. Um, she uh, and she was threatened. Uh, she and her husband sent their children out of town to school because they were afraid for their lives. And in her last year as mayor, she began carrying a gun for her own protection. So uh, things got pretty nasty for poor old
1: No Sin Lee. And you got to feel sorry for her. You detail some notorious crimes from the era, and one of the more interesting, if that's the right term, uh, to me is the Willamette River Torso case. Tell us a little bit about that case, and apparently you have some rather new information as yes, well. Wow. Is,
2: this, is, this is one I'm really interested in. Um, I've been following this one for a long time. This was What happened was, in the spring of 1946, um, some people found a package uh, floating in the Willamette River, and it contained body parts. Um, and they were parts of a 50-year-old woman. Uh, Over the summer and into the fall, they found four or five of these packages, and they eventually found most of her body. Um, They never identified the victim. They never identified any suspects, and it's one of the coldest cases in the area. Uh, In fact, the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department reopened the case in 2010, shortly after I did a blog post on it. I don't think I had anything to do with that, but there's interest. Um, So while I was investigating the 1932 mayor's election, I ran across this odd character. Her name's Anna Schrader. She had a short-lived run for mayor that year, but she is fascinating. She was a famous beauty. She was a professional swimmer. Uh, In uh, 1918 or 1919, she became a private detective who was hired by the Portland Police Bureau to do undercover work. Um, She was involved in a big sex scandal with another officer in 1921. And uh, after that, she became the leading critic of the police bureau and of the city government, trying to expose the corruption that was going on. Uh, She was never really believed. Most people thought Anna Schrader was pretty crazy. Um, She ran two recall elections against Mayor Baker. And then she ran for mayor in 1932. And then she disappeared in 1946. No one knows what happened to her. The, the, um, The last that we have found on her was the 1940 census. And then in April of 1946, there was a personal ad in the Oregonian where someone was looking for information on Anna Schrader, what had happened to her. So I, in my book, I kind of almost jokingly said, it's odd that she disappeared at the same time, you know, as this woman whose body they found. Uh, Since then, I've been working with another researcher, Teresa Kennedy-Dupay, and she's looking into Anna Schrader's life, and it's... Looking more and more like she might be the victim of the 1946 ter- torso murder. Um, in fact, after this interview, I'm going to be contacting the Clackamas County Sheriff's Department to ask them if they've considered her as a as a suspect, and hopefully, we can get this
1: case um, at least investigated. You talk about two classic films that our listeners might want to know a little bit more about. Can you can you tell us a bit about those?
3: Yeah, one of them is Portland Exposé, which came out in 1957. And that was right at the tail end of the Vice uh, scandal. The McClellan hearings had wrapped up. Jim Elkins was kind of on his way out in a lot of ways. Uh, and this movie basically tells a fictional version of the story. Um, An independent tavern owner basically pressured into uh, putting some pinball machines into his tavern by uh, the, uh, the the crime syndicate and basically uh, kind of being able to get out of the a very sticky situation and make Portland safe for families again, which is kind of how the movie wraps up. And, um, of course, it was a fictionalized telling, but it was obviously a sensitive story to be telling at that point. Apparently, interested parties didn't want the uh, movie to be shown in Portland, and it was actually not shown, I believe it was 1983 when it was first screened, and then finally came out on DVD uh, after Phil Stanford's Portland Confidential came out. So uh, it was kind of a long time coming, but it's an interesting movie in part because it brings out, uh, first of all, the, the story of the, the Vice scandal uh, with a happy ending, which didn't necessarily happen according, you know, it depends on who you talk to, um, at the end of the uh, the McClellan hearings, uh, and also shows the kind of the discovery of uh, files at the end, the, the uh, protagonist goes to a warehouse with a bunch of others to basically be able to uh, finally undermine the, the gangsters by finding all their files and it's kind of interesting because what JD and I are doing now is we're actually doing that a little bit more um, but then the other movie kind of a little bit more bizarre uh, it's a movie called Dementia it was first made in 1953 and it was filmed in Venice California but it was made by a Portland guy named John J. Parker the third And um, if you lived in Portland in the 1940s, you would know the Parker name. His mother uh, ran uh, the uh, major movie theaters in Portland, the Broadway, uh, and the Fox, and several others uh, during that time. And uh, Parker himself was a kind of aspiring filmmaker. He'd moved down to LA, and he made this movie, which was very, very controversial. In fact, it was banned by censors, and he was forced to remake it, not the entire thing, but to rebrand it basically calling it Daughter of Horror um, and then adding a narrator played by Ed McMahon, no less, <laughs> um, that kind of changes it from a psychological thriller into a horror movie. The censors were really up in arms with the idea that this movie would make people insane. Um, so uh, he, once it was, it was um, brought back out as Daughter of Horror, it, was, it had very limited screening, but it told the story of a young woman basically on a journey of one night, a kind of nightmare journey through Skid Row, um, dealing with drugs and prostitution and jazz musicians and all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, I'm not going to give it all away, because this is kind of one of the things about our story that's kind of surprising and compelling, but it turns out that this Parker, this John J. Parker III, um, has some interesting connections to what we discovered in our story about, about these uh Forgotten Murders, and uh, let's just say that it, there may be a more biographical element to this film than anyone ever thought.
2: And also it's a pretty groovy
3: film. Yeah, it is. It's a, a great example of a sort of mid-century expressionist noir filmmaking, and it's definitely worth checking out.
1: So you've got all of this this just amazing field available in front of you. I mean, how did you choose which to- You had to narrow down the topics. How did you choose which ones to talk about in the book? Well, the history press, you're right. The history of press has a very strict limit on word count.
2: We were limited to 50,000 words. So we knew from the start this was going to be very focused. Um, so I, I did write an outline for the book that connected the 1934 waterfront strike uh, to these murders, uh, the Podlis, Schultz, and then the Joanne Dewey murder. Uh, so we had a very clear outline of how we were going to get there. Uh, we did, fortunately, when we got to the end, we had some space left uh, because we had discovered some things. Uh, the whole chapter on the abortionists uh, we added because of the find of Rolla Crick's notebook. Uh, the, all of the stuff about the torso murder was stuff that we discovered along the way. The stuff about the Red Squad, this was all stuff that came up that we didn't really know we were going to find. Um, and then, most important, um, we had kind of started with this idea that these two 1948 murders, Roman Podlas and Pierre Schultz, uh, were connected to the Joanne Dewey case and uh, we thought, well, it would be really cool if we could figure this out and figure out what the connection is, but we didn't really think that we were going to be able to solve it. But we actually do name some suspects, and I think we have figured out what the real story is there. Um, So we got kind of lucky, and um, it was good that we had that extra space so we could add to it. But you're right, it was tough. We had to just stay very focused on the idea of connecting the labor violence of the 30s with the murders in the 40s and uh, just really kind of having tunnel vision right from the start on that.
3: I don't want to sound too mystical or anything, but part of it just seemed to kind of come, in, come together, uh, especially in terms of the discoveries that J.D. was just talking about. We were able to put pieces together toward the end so that everything fell into place, and obviously with a book project, especially something involving you know 60-plus-year-old murders and stories like that, there was no guarantee that that would happen, so felt like these are stories that somehow were meant to be told and told this way at this point. That's and,
1: that's pretty fucking groovy. Yeah. Man. Well, uh,
3: and we
2: did both have the feeling that Walter Graven was watching over us. Yeah. We both felt it very strongly at different points that mm-hmm. this detective was still hoping for it.
3: Well, he had, he had left this envelope amongst all of his things. It says Podless uh, Schultz Dewey Murders and it was just an envelope that had all these pieces of information not necessarily in any order, but, you know, files and notes and all kinds of things. And it clearly looked like this was meant to be found, and this, you know, would pick up the, the pieces where he left off. And so we've been very and, happy that we've been able to do that. And we
2: have a letter from him to uh, then Multnomah County Sheriff Terry Shrunk, who later became the mayor, where he resigns from the case because he says, somebody doesn't want me to solve this case. So he was stopped. He was definitely stopped. And he had the, he had
1: the stuff, but he couldn't bring it forward. So he saved it for us. Mm -hmm. I think we can see pretty clearly that Portland was an open town. Um, From the three books that we have here, and I'm gonna go back and say pretty damn close to the coin toss and the clearing. And this is, of course, a labor view, but Portland is a place where people came to get jobs and to make their monies, and the business owners here would give you anything you wanted and happily help you part with some of that hard-earned dough. So looking back on the more recent past to, again, Terry Shrunk, we're talking about maybe Penny Harrington, perhaps. Portland was still pretty wide open, and it seems to have always been. So I'm going to ask you, is Portland an open city to this day?
2: Well, I'm a historian, so I Don't know that I'm really qualified to talk about what's happening now, but any Portlander can see that some things have changed and some things have not changed. Uh, We have legalized gambling, uh, so we've taken the middleman out of that, um, which probably has cut down on crime in that area quite a bit. But somebody is still making a lot of money on drugs and prostitution. There are still huge profits being made, and the city is still corrupt. All you have to do is look at the situation with Club CESO and the fire department right now, where it looks like they've paid bribes to not have fire inspections. Uh, This is exactly the kind of situations that we had in the 30s and 40s. No different today there. So is Portland still an open town? Your guess is as good as mine. But the historical record is definitely there, and some things just haven't
1: changed. What does the future hold for you two? Uh, Will you be working together again on other projects?
3: Yeah, we're actually working right now. We're we're working on a screenplay of these uh, murders. The, Is it going to be like expressionist
1: noir? Well, it may
3: have a little of... element to it. We're uh, still trying to kind of feel it out in terms of whether to uh, do it as a series or a feature film. But we're um, really excited about how, uh, once again, the, the material gives us so much to work with that uh, we think it makes it a pretty good damn story to tell in in this format. And one of the things about it, too— we with the Joanne Dewey case, even though we're talking about it as a forgotten murder, this one does have a long record. You know, this was a, a big deal case at the time that, where two people were executed for her death, uh, Terman and Utah Wilson, who were executed in 1953. And uh, that story was always uh, left open to the extent that there were lots and lots of petitions, lots of people wondering if these guys were actually the perpetrators. You know, there was a, one single piece of circumstantial evidence in the case that got them the death penalty. Um, and they themselves um, never said that they were there were others involved, but many people, including Graven and Anderson, were very much aware that that was the case. Um, and so it was a story that, in many ways, is known today. Other people are working on it, or have been th- looking into the Dewey case, but we feel, with our unique perspective from some of this material, that we can tell it in a way that you know, it has a very cinematic kind of element to it that I think people will want to want to watch and learn more about.
2: And it's really fun writing the screenplay because we don't have to be bound by the truth anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're just speculating wildly and putting it together dramatically. And I think we're probably telling the true story here. But it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to do. Uh, our interests are kind of going in opposite directions other than the screenplay because you're more interested in the 50s. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking more at the 20s. Uh, I'm, I'm really interested in who George Baker was and what Prohibition did in this town. And I think that could be my next book, but I'd work with JB anytime.
3: Yeah, likewise. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm not going to say anything about my next project that I've been in the midst of, but it will, it will come, and it is about the 50s. It's about another case that Graven was involved in. So, well, yeah, but I'd look forward to working with J.D. on some more as well.
1: Well, JB and JD, thanks so much for talking to us today for the uh, Kick-Ass Oregon History Book Club. Of course, Portland on the Take is the name of the book. Folks should absolutely pick it up. Very excited about it. Such a fun read, if I can use that term, fun. It's <laughs> uh, so the usual, of course, local booksellers are the ones that we would want folks to uh, check out. Or, of course, History Press will have that available as well. And uh, any other parting thoughts?
3: That sounds good,
1: thanks, Doug. Yeah, thanks a lot, Doug. We love your show. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, and uh, glad we
0: could get together and chat today. Great. Thanks, thanks, folks. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Now God said to Noah, I don't want no sinning. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. I've been telling you this since in the beginning. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. You gotta round up your sons and all of their women. Oh yeah because you're going on a big boat ride. ride. Now gather all the animals by yeah. the pair, build a big ship about a million square, and put all the animals right, right in there, and sail away on the tide. Uh, uh, but what if Noah had just said no, sir. Oh Well, we'd all have fins and scaly skins. We'd breathe through gills instead of nostrils. And we'd yeah. eat fish food instead of
3: vitamin B. <laughs>
0: It's scary, but it's true. So do what the good book, do what the good book, do what the good book tells you to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening, ass kickers. And be on the lookout for future podcasts from Mm -hmm. ORhistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was recorded, edited, edited and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh with help from Alex Ward. Citations are available on request. Kickass Oregon History is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. You can also find us on the Facebook. Our email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com Want more Kick-Ass Oregon History in your life? Become a podcast supporter. Learn more at ORhistory.com Just... Don't get too close to Mr. Kank Crispin, or he'll read between the lines, if you know what I mean. No, you probably don't. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass! ORHistory.com